How do you handle it when your plans derail? My answer to that question is a little complicated. You see, I like to think of myself as a fairly flexible person. I don't mind a change in plan. I don't mind having to pivot. In fact, sometimes I even find it energizing when I need to find a solution around some sort of problem or issue that's come up. Until I can't. You see, then when I hit a solid wall and there are no creative solutions to get around my problems, that's when I tend to get a little bit grumpy. We've all experienced derailed plans, but none more so than the past two years, I'm guessing. Thanksgiving 2020 was a rough one for me. You see, I love holidays. I live for holidays. I love traditions. I love getting together with all of the family. I love a house full of people and laughter. To me, that's what makes a holiday feel like a holiday. So that Thanksgiving, when we found ourselves in quarantine, I was not pleased. There were no creative solutions. There was no way around it. The facts were the facts. We were going to be celebrating our first Thanksgiving with just the four of us. And I'll be honest, I was pretty bummed. There were no solutions. So like any sane and rational person would do in the face of disappointment, I completely overcompensated and ran myself into the ground trying to create a perfect day. I set a fancy tablescape. I made crafts with the kids. I made a full Thanksgiving meal with all of the different foods, which my kids don't even like, by the way, for the four of us. I tried to cram so much holiday magic into one day that by the end of the day, I was not only disappointed that it looked different than usual, I was also just exhausted. You see, rather than accept what was different, to face it, to maybe opt for a more simple holiday or a different type of day, I wanted to make it as traditional and magical as possible. And by the end of it, I was just burned out and sad. The plans derailed and I did not cope well. And as we finish up this study in the book of Acts, the pace of the story, it changes a bit. And if I'm being totally honest, it can feel a little bit anticlimactic. You see, we've been following the acts of the apostles, and we've been witnessing all these amazing things that the Holy Spirit is doing. And there are crazy miracles, and people are getting saved by the thousands, and there's constant threat of danger, and it's just exciting. And then all of a sudden, we found Paul and our story a bit stuck. Paul is imprisoned, and he's just waiting for two years. In some ways, it felt like the plan was derailed. But I think when we look at the plans that were derailed, and we look at Paul specifically, we can learn a lot to apply to our own lives about what to do and how to handle it when our plans are derailed. Now, I wouldn't describe the last few chapters of Acts as boring per se. There's a shipwreck and a snake bite and all kinds of other moments that occur along the way, but it does feel like the whole story has been blown off course. It feels like the early church and the apostles are, have lost some of this momentum that they were gaining in the first place, especially as we zero in on Paul and what's happening in his life. Like, what is God doing? Why is he allowing all of this 
forward progress to halt. But Paul doesn't respond in the way that I think I probably would have. And I think there are three major lessons we can learn from the way he responded when the plans derailed. The first lesson is this. People are not obstacles. Assume they are intentionally placed. How often are you on the way to do something? Maybe you're in a hurry, that's probably something important, and a person gets in the way of what you're doing. You don't wanna be impatient, it's not personal, it's not like you don't like that person, it's just that you have things to do and you might not have an extra 15 minutes to, st to spend standing in the produce aisle talking to this person today because we've got busy lives and we've got stuff to do. It can feel in that moment like a person is an obstacle and not a divine appointment. I'll be honest, I feel this fairly often at bedtime. If you've put a small child to bed before, you probably know how this goes. There's negotiating, a lot of it. One more sip of water, just a little snack. I need to go potty one more time. Can I have one more book? Will you just lay with me here for a couple more minutes? And I know in my mama heart, I am supposed to be loving and cherishing this time. And sometimes I do. And I bet some of you moms with grown children out there would give anything just to have another experience with these sweet little moments. But when you're in it day in and day out, sometimes it's just a little bit exhausting. And post bedtime is, is the time that I have to catch up with my husband or just sit on the couch staring blankly at the wall because I'm too wiped to do anything else. Parenting young kids is really tiring. So the other night I was putting my son to bed and I was reading him a couple pages from his space book. And I unfortunately came across the page about the future of space travel. And my son starts asking me about light years and wormholes and the time-space continuum and, oh, have they ever successfully put someone in suspended animation before? And I am sitting there and my brain is completely fried from a full day and I don't even know anything I'm talking about. And he's asking me to explain these concepts that I do not understand and I just wanted to go and sit on the couch and turn off my brain. This in-depth line of questioning felt more like an obstacle than an opportunity in the moment. And this can happen when we're tired physically, mentally, or emotionally, or even all three. It can happen when we've moved on to what's next in our heads. It can happen when we've got a goal that we're focused on. We can sort of skip ahead sometimes and miss what's right in front of us. But Paul didn't seem to struggle with this, quite like I do. You see, back in Acts chapter 24, which Sherry taught us about last week, for the first part of Paul's imprisonment, this man um, named the governor, of, governor Felix was overseeing his trial. And Felix was an interesting character. We know that he thought Paul was innocent of the crimes he was being accused of, but he was trying to keep the Jews happy, so he kept Paul in prison. He delayed his release for two years. This is Acts 24, 24. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. So Felix and his wife sent for Paul often after this. 
partially because they were hoping for a bribe and partially because they were interested in what Paul had to say. So for two whole years, Paul's evangelistic purposes were focused entirely on Felix and his wife. And while we don't really get a full picture of what happened between them, what these conversations looked like, there's no evidence really that Felix or his wife started following Jesus. Felix, in fact, was afraid of what Paul had to say and was afraid of the implications on his own life and the way that he would have to change. So he put up his defenses. So for two entire years, Paul worked on hearts who were likely rather closed to the truth. If that doesn't feel like derailing, I'm not sure what would. And yet, Paul continued with persistence and the same urgency in sharing the truth of the gospel that we've always observed in him. He carried this on up until the time Felix was relieved of his duties and was replaced by Festus. Paul didn't view Felix as an obstacle to his plans, but rather as a person worthy of hearing the gospel at every opportunity. So then, as Paul continues this slow prison journey, he continued to use every opportunity he had to speak the truth and further the gospel. In Acts 25 and 26, Paul has a huge opportunity as he stands not only before Governor Felix, but also King Agrippa. And this is a huge moment. Paul takes advantage of this opportunity not to defend himself, although that comes naturally a little bit, but to point each and every listener towards Jesus Christ and towards the resurrection. He shares his own testimony, the testimony of the man that he was before he came to Christ, and then the story of who Jesus Christ transformed him into. And there's absolutely no mistaking his intent here. Acts 26, 28. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these, change, these chains. Paul's motivation here is plain. As long as I have a voice, as long as I have anyone listening, I want each and every person I come in contact with to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul did not see these things as obstacles on the way to his journey to Rome. He saw them, he saw people as intentionally placed. In this way, he follows the example of Jesus. There were so many times in the gospels when the disciples got this wrong. They were frequently annoyed by Jesus' detours. Jesus would always stop for an insignificant person, for Zacchaeus, for the woman at the well, for the woman who was stricken, stricken with bleeding, for the lepers, for the children. He didn't see people as obstacles, but rather as people that were worth investing in, worth sharing the good news with and worth stopping for. So as you ponder this, there's a few questions I want us to ask ourselves. When have I seen people as obstacles to the goal rather than intentionally placed in my path? Where is one place I ought to be more present and focused in my attention? And is there one person I can think of right now that I have perhaps been viewing through the wrong lens? Paul didn't see people as obstacles. He saw them as intentionally placed 
in his path. And I think it would benefit us greatly to do the same. So the second lesson I see here from the life of Paul in these chapters is this. Lead from wherever you are. A lot of people believe that you have to be in charge in order to lead. And while it's true that in order to be a good leader, you must be a good follower, it doesn't mean that leadership only happens when you're the person in authority over everyone else. When I was in college, I ended up on this 30-day trip that was focused on leadership, missions, and evangelism, and we went to the country of Nepal. And during this trip, we studied different leadership principles, and we took turns being the leader for the day. So one of the days, we spent the day trekking up the Himalayan mountains to a small village, and we stayed there for several days running VBS and encouraging the believers that were there. And when it was time to head back down the mountain, it was my turn to lead. So I'd already learned a lot about leadership and authority on this trip, and many of my youthful notions about leading had already been flipped upside down. And so as I was discussing my plan for the next day with my trip leader, I came to a really important realization. You see, on the way up, our leader had been setting the pace, but not everyone on our team was in the same physical shape. There had been moments when people needed to stop to use the bathroom, to pull leeches off our ankles, true story, or to put some band-aids on the blisters that were forming, or because we were just exhausted. But the leader that day was often so far ahead that those who had to stop found themselves hustling and working hard to catch up to the rest of the team. Having debriefed that as a team, I started to understand that a leader doesn't always have to stand in the front. In fact, it might be more effective to choose someone else to lead and set the pace and as the leader to make sure that no one was left behind and to be the person adjusting the pace. And so that's what we did that day. We all made it down the mountain, but more importantly, we learned something profound about leadership. Good leadership is about way more than just the authority that you wield. At the start of Acts, Paul was wielding great authority. He was a Pharisee. He was a Roman citizen. He was well-respected, and he was using his power and authority to hunt down the Christians and to persecute them. Now, Paul is the one in chains. His earthly authority is completely gone, but he can still command a room. And there's this great contrast in the picture of authority in Acts 25 and 26. You see, not only has Governor Festus come into a new position of power, but also a king named Agrippa is visiting. When Felix was removed, Festus had inherited this tricky situation of what exactly to do with Paul. And on the one hand, Paul was clearly innocent. But on the other hand, Festus did not want to anger the Jews from his brand new position. And towing the line did not work for Felix. So Festus had to come up with a new solution. So he asks the king Agrippa for advice. And the king's intrigued, so they want to hear from this man named Paul. Acts 25, 23. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. Great pomp. What did that mean? Well, there was a huge entourage of all the most important people. Agrippa and Bernice were likely wearing royal robes of purple and crowns on their heads. 
and the governor Festus was probably wearing his scarlet robe for special occasions. The military leaders there would have been wearing their ceremonial garb, and everywhere you looked would just be emanating power, authority, position, and wealth. And then there's Paul, a prisoner for two years, wearing prisoner's clothing and standing all alone with chains around his wrists. We know that he was shackled because he mentioned that in Acts 26, 29. And yet, as Paul begins to speak, no earthly authority imaginable can overcome the authority coming from this man. The audience is wrapped with attention as Paul begins to speak, and he offers his defense using a classical defense pattern of his time. He begins with the exordium, he moves to the narratio, and finally, the argumentio. So the first section he addresses and he shows deference to the king, that's the exordium. And then the second session, the second section, the narratio, this is really significant and here's why. Of all the times Paul has shared his testimony, this is the longest, fullest, and most complete account that we have of Paul's conversion. He told his story in great detail, beginning with who he was before his encounter with Jesus and all the ways that he changed as a result of it. He showed clearly and with great gravitas what it means to be changed by the resurrection. He shared without shame, diminishing, or covering up his horrible actions before he became a Christian. He was not afraid to admit what he had once been because of the power of Jesus Christ displayed in the transformation of his life. It matters that this was his longest and most complete account because he's trying to get his point across so clearly of what exactly Jesus Christ could do in the lives of every person who was listening. And although the leaders did not immediately fall to their knees in repentance, which is probably what most of us wish had happened, they did respect him. He held them with rapt attention. And even though they could not agree on or surrender their lives to Christ that day, they did respect him and know that he was innocent. Paul was leading that day, although he was the one in chains. And then when we move on to Acts chapter 27, we see Paul once again leading when he's not in charge. See, after this long lull of activity, Paul is on the move again, moving towards Rome as God had promised, but there are more obstacles to come. And in this case, it's a shipwreck. Not much has changed for Paul in terms of his earthly authority. He's still a prisoner at this point, but he continues to wield influence on those around him. The first evidence is the way that Paul is treated by Julius, his guard. We learn about that in Acts chapter 27, verse 3. The next day when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul, and they let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. Already, Paul has made a favorable impression on his powerful guard, Julius. And he's given a level of leeway that's not typically seen for most prisoners. There's a mutual respect that's already begun just a short way into their journey. But as the journey continues, the respect that he's earned just continues to grow. First, Paul warns the group that they should not leave Crete, but they don't listen. Acts 27, 11. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner then to Paul. They don't really quite understand the authority with which Paul speaks. 
at least not yet. But can you blame them really? They, they don't know what they're dealing with. They defer to the earthly authorities on this matter of where to sail and when to sail. They listen to the people that they perceive as experts because they don't understand that Paul is a man who speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ behind him. But of course, Paul is right. And soon the ship is even way, in even way more trouble than they were in before. And after days of being tossed, tossed about, losing cargo, losing daylight, and losing hope, Paul sees an opportunity to fill a leadership gap. Here's what Paul said in Acts 27, 21. Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. I'll be honest, at first read, that kind of seemed like a jerk thing to say. They've been tossed about for days. Everyone is convinced they're going to die. This doesn't quite feel like the moment for gloating about how right you were back there. In fact, it sounds like something that siblings would be fighting about. I was right and you were wrong. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing here at all. I don't think he's being smug. And I certainly don't think he's gloating. I think that he's reminding these men that he speaks with an authority that they have not recognized but that they should truly listen to his position hasn't changed he's still a prisoner he's still in chains but this time in their desperation they're ready to listen and paul gives them a message of hope there's a warning there too there's some rough seas ahead but paul's belief is that god will pull each and every one of them through and it's a promise he's able to pass on to these men and then over the next several days, Paul is the one issuing commands. He's leading the soldiers to cut away the boat so that the sailors can't escape. He's the one commanding everyone to eat so that they have their strength up for the moment of shipwreck. And eventually, he leads every single one of them to the safety of land, and not a single soul is lost that day. Paul was excellent at leading when he wasn't in charge. He used a combination of his confidence in Christ his discernment of what God was saying, his persuasive abilities, his clever use of timing, and his calm and respectable demeanor to lead from even the lowest of positions, a prisoner. Paul teaches us to never count ourselves out when there's an opportunity to step into God-given leadership. We don't need to be in charge to have authority. We can influence the world around us for Christ. He will give us the tools and the wisdom that we need. So a few questions to ask regarding leading when we're not in charge. Where do I have authority or influence right now? Where might I be shrinking back when God wants me to step forward? In the places where I do have authority or influence, am I using it to always point others towards Christ? What might that look like? Even the very word leadership can bring up all kinds of different ideas and responses for each of us. Some of us are comfortable with that language. We've grown accustomed to it. Other, others of us might not feel like the word leader has ever or will ever describe us. But the truth is, every person who is in Christ is called to lead, not to be in command or authority necessarily, but to bring godly influence to all of the places where we're called. Ultimately, for the Christ follower, the goal of learning about leadership is to point as many people to Jesus as we can. So the third lesson we can take from the life of Paul is this. 
the path isn't linear. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to think of life as a timeline, right? And it makes sense because when people die, we can make a tidy timeline of their lives. You see, first this thing happened, which then led to this thing and then this thing and so on and so forth until we die. But that's not how life works as we're living it. So many of you know, I used to work with the teenagers here at Chapel Street. And I got to tell you, I love teenagers. They are smart. They are interesting. They're never afraid to express what's going on in their lives and their doubts and things that they're wrestling with. It's really inspiring. So one of the things that would come up very often with students, something that they would be wrestling with, was what to do after high school whether they were deciding which college to choose or to take a gap year or to do a missions experience or to start with community college or to go into a trade, so many different options and so many of them would really struggle with weighing through those things and trying to figure out what was next for them. And these poor kids, they would come on these retreats and they were so stressed out by all of the roads before them. And the more conversations I had with them, the more I started to see a common thread. The students wanted God to let them know what to do. They, like all of us, that w they wanted a big flashing sign that read, God's will, go this way, do this thing. And so at first I would sort of listen to their struggles and, and ask them a lot of questions and try to help them weed through a little bit of what they were thinking but the more I found myself in these conversations with these crying, stressed out students trying to figure out God's path for their lives, the more I realized that the students actually needed help reframing these questions. So I started to ask a question. Do you think there's only one path that God has for your life? And if so, what happens if you fall off the path? If God wants you to choose college B, and instead you choose college A, does that mean you're off of God's plan for your life forever? Are you now living outside of God's will? See, these questions, they were meant to help students understand something very important. God's will means living our lives for Him. It means making choices that honor Him and pointing to Him with every step. But that can look a lot of different ways. And sometimes in life there isn't a right choice and a wrong choice. Sometimes there are just choices and any of those choices can honor God if that is the desire of our heart. Real life is not a tidy timeline, at least not until it's over. And God's plan for our lives is, is not going from one clean thing to the next. And making a mistake doesn't knock us off God's plan either. We can stray from him to be sure, but as soon as we are ready, he calls us right back to him. In this book of Acts, we see the journey is not going quite as expected. You see, Paul knew that he would get to Rome, and God graciously had offered him that assurance, but I highly doubt Paul would have anticipated the journey it took to get there. I'm going to put this map up on the screen of this journey, and we'll take a look at the way things went sideways along the way. Right from the get-go, we know that the voyage was beginning too late in the sailing season. They did not have enough time to make it as far as they were trying to go. So here's our map. I'm going to just read parts from Acts chapter 27. Putting out to sea from there, Sidon, we encountered strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. 
so we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. Keeping to the open sea, we passed along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. There the commanding officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy, and he put us on board. We had several days of slow sailing, and after great difficulty, we finally neared Nidus. But the wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island. So you can see that map clearly marked out here. Their path that they took this way and then coming up to here. Now, they're already off course because they've started too late. And then once they get to Mira, they get way off course because they should have never ended up in Nidus in, at all. In fact, the normal route was to go south from here, south of Rhodes and north of Crete and to come through this area. But the powerful winds drove them this way and then that way. So they end up on the south end of Crete, which they never should have been at in the first place. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Other translations say that they were past the fast, meaning they were past the Day of Atonement, which takes place in October. Many sailors at that time would not risk traveling even in September and would have considered travel in November beyond impossible. So Paul advises them to stay at Fair Havens for the winter, but as we already know, they opted instead to sail on just a little bit farther, trying to get to Phoenix. But they don't make it. The nor'easter comes through and it blows them every which way. And I love these little squiggly lines on our map to show that this was just the time they were wild, they were out of control, and they had no idea where they were. When the sun and the stars were blacked out, they had no way of orienting themselves. There were no compasses. They had no idea where they were. They had no idea if they were close to land. But what they did know is that they could be nearing this area, which was known as the Sirtis Sands, and it was a graveyard for many ancient ships. So it's no wonder that they were terrified. But thanks to Paul's wisdom and leadership, we know that they eventually made it to shipwreck on the island of Malta. So why are we bothering to retrace this ancient path and to talk about old sailing traditions and the routes they would have taken? Why bother digging deep into something that doesn't seem super relevant? I think it's important for this reason. Paul knew what it meant to be wildly off course. He had a plan and he even had assurance that it was God's plan that he was going to Rome. But instead of getting there directly, he faces years of prison, audiences before powerful men, and an extremely crazy and dangerous voyage at sea. Maybe you felt this way before, I know I have. Like when you're traveling and everything's just going wrong, 
your flight's delayed, and then when you finally end up at the destination and you go to pick up your rental car, they tell you that they don't have any cars left, and then you have this total meltdown about the difference between taking a reservation and holding a reservation, a la Jerry Seinfeld. Have you seen that one? Extremely frustrating when they have your reservation and have no car for you. That's happened to me twice. Or maybe it's the things that you can't even look back in retrospect and find humor in them. Maybe it wasn't even a little funny then and it's not even a little funny now. Choices you wish you could undo or circumstances that were totally out of your control and they knocked you off balance and off course. You see, sometimes in life we're, we're going to get blown about by the winds that we have absolutely no control of. Sometimes we're going to be pushing forward in one direction, absolutely sure that we are in the center of God, what God wants for us. And then we will continue to face obstacle after obstacle. And we're going to be tempted to sit back and say, well, that's not fair. I'm doing what God wants. So why is this so hard? Here are a few questions we can ask ourselves in those moments. What are the obstacles in front of me right now? How might God want to use me in the midst of these obstacles? How can I focus on who God wants me to be in the middle of the journey rather than focusing solely on the destination? I hope the next time I'm in a moment like this, I remember Paul, who, despite staying in the center of God's will, found himself blown about and out of control for years. And in that time, he continued to see every person he encountered as an opportunity. He led and he influenced even without earthly authority, and ultimately he pointed everyone around him to Christ. In this study, we've talked about what it means to awaken to God in our lives. And in these chapters, I'm in awe of the example that Paul sets forth for us. Awakening to God means not only to see him everywhere, but to see each and every moment in our life as a divine appointment, as an opportunity to share his love, to lead with his type of godly leadership, to wield the kind of influence that we get when we are spirit-led people. We can see these moments as obstacles and frustrations, or like Paul, we can see them as holy opportunities full of moments to point to Christ.